I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Greg Tarchek, the founder of Johnny Bird Brewing Company in Wayne, Nebraska. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Greg Tarchek is the president of Johnny Bird Brewing Company in Wayne, Nebraska. His passion for rural Nebraska led to a successful career in rural economic development. Greg served as director of economic development for the city of Neely for four years. He now promotes community development through founding Nebraska's first benefit corporation brewery. He's a graduate of Wayne State College. In his spare time, Greg enjoys escaping into fantasy novels because who doesn't wish they could be a wizard? Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I feel like many people listening perhaps have little idea what a small rural town like Wayne in Northeast Nebraska is like. So would you describe the town for us? Yeah. Um, so Wayne is a community of about 5,500. I think the sign actually says a little over 6,000, but that's including the college students. And so like when you, it's a, it's a weird town because when you take away the college students, um, we're probably around 2,500 to 3,000. It's a unique rural town um, in that I, I call it a, prog- a progressive bastion in rural Nebraska. We have the college, which um, we're 100% thankful for, but uh, that it adds a little bit of uniqueness to Wayne that I think there was a statistic that Wayne is the... Um, most educated community in Nebraska per capita. And that means that uh, I think, I think it was somewhere around like 40% actually have a bachelor's degree. And so it, it makes a, a unique community that is progressive, but still has that like small town Americana feel in that, you know, you can, you, your kids can bike down to school. They can bike down to the movie theater, um, go to the gas station and, and go buy a pop or some candy. But you still have some of the, um, with a town Wayne size, you still have a little bit of the um, creature comforts that you might want in a larger town, you know, still have a McDonald's, still have a Pizza Hut. Um, we've actually got like five different kinds of pizzas places in Wayne, um, which is un- it's pretty uncommon um, for a community our size, but um, college students love pizza. So what can you say? You know, towns usually Wayne size that would be around 3,500 would be big enough to have a little bit of the creature comforts. Um, but Wayne has quite a few more just because of the college students. You know, there's not many places where pre COVID you could have all kinds of social and, and more cultural events. Um, you know, there's not many places where you, you could show up in a community Wayne size and have live music multiple times a month and some really good stuff. Um, you know, the college pulling in different artists and then local bars pulling in artists and then like plays. We have a really active community theater that's very strongly connected to the college. Um, and then just even seeing like the college plays art. Uh, we have an art gallery in Wayne, um, 
that's not connected with the college. Um, and then we have one that is connected with the college. So we have poetry slams, stuff like that. So that lends Wayne to be a little bit more unique than a lot of communities our size. Um, and that's one of the things that drew us, um, my family to Wayne was that we were going to be able to help move the community forward, but not be one of the only ones that's out in front pulling the wagon. Um, we knew that there was going to be a lot of people helping us pull this wagon forward um, and make it just a great community and, and help Nebraska in general. To bring us up to that point then, let's go back a little bit and maybe set the stage for your life. So tell me about your upbringing. You know, where, where were you born and what was your childhood like? Yes, I was born in Osceola, um, which is kind of eastern central Nebraska, um, in between York and Columbus, if a lot of people know where those two towns are. Uh, when I was growing up, the, I think it read like 850 people. Um, I'd guess that it's probably declined down to about 700 now. Um, it was the county seat. So it was small town living, like really small town living but with some of the creature comforts that were 30 miles away. So, you know, if you wanted quality groceries that was a little bit more than like meat, potatoes, eggs, um, you needed to head 30 miles away to go grab your groceries. And so growing up in that town, like I loved all of the small town flavor that I got from that. Um, and I think it really set the stage for who I became as an adult. Um, and that I knew that that was going to be um, very important for me to be able to to actually have a lot of those things for my children um, and wanting a lot of those things um, when when I became an adult but uh, I think I graduated um, our class was thirty four is what we graduated with, and we were the largest class since the eighties like that I think led to who I am today um, because in a class of 30, um, you can't hide. Like you can't find your clique. You can't not get along with people that are in your class. Like you, you just have to work with them. You have to get along because you know, you know, it wasn't that we were split into two different classes um, throughout elementary. Like it was just all 30 of us were just a large class that was um, all stuck together with one teacher. Um, and so you knew you had to get along. And I think, you know, in, in looking back at my economic development career um, and, and just the state of Nebraska as a whole and, and rural Nebraska in general, you know, we talk about brain drain and, and a lot of the uh, rural flight. Um, I call it exporting our youth um, because that those skills that are gained from having to get along and having to manage relationships make our youth in Nebraska and especially in rural Nebraska a very hot commodity because you know that they're going to, they're going to work in the workforce. They're going to find ways to get along with people. Um, they're not just going to shut down um, at adversity um, and, and social adversity. Um, they're going to find a way to, to get along. And I think that's why um, a lot of our Midwestern rural youth are, are finding really good jobs um, on the coasts or um, in bigger cities. Take your moment to talk.
Is this a bit of a segue then into what it was that drew you into the economic development field? What was that like? What were you doing as part of that role? And that role was in Neely, right? Yep. Yeah. And to be clear, Neely is about a, a town of a thousand people. Um, it says on the sign 1500, but yeah, I'd say it's, it's probably even closer to 1300. Um, so, uh, and it's in Northeast Nebraska. Um, it is, um, it's a, it's a fun community, but, um, it's that County seat of Antelope County. Um, so it is the draw for, um, I mean, if you're coming from 15 miles away, um, like just draw a circle 15 miles, they're probably coming to Neely to grab their groceries, um, barring going to another community. Um, Neely would be the closest place for a lot of people. Um, so yeah, I, I graduated. Um, well, I didn't graduate. I, I had a couple hours shy and then, um, got married. Um, so I met my wife in, in Wayne, um, when we were at Wayne state college and then, um, she was looking for a job and she grew up in Neely and happened to get a teaching job in Neely. And so, um, we landed there and I'd been working at target, um, when I was, um, in my master's program. And so I just transferred up there, um, to, uh, a target store close to Neely in Norfolk and just kind of was just do my thing. Um, and then, as I got a little bit more involved in the community of Neely, um, they had just started their economic development push. Um, they had been looking at like, okay, our main street is crumbling. Um, it's dying. How do we fix this? What do we need to do to help? And so there was a lot of like poster communities that were out there. And so they talked to uh, Caleb Pollard, who is in Ord. Um, and he came to um, Neely, just talked to them about like, hey, these are the, some of the things that you need to implement. Um, so they started doing that and uh, just through my in-laws just kind of got hooked into that group that was helping move things. Um, and it was really like surface level, just kind of outsider um, looking at like, hey, these are some of the things that I see from just some of my background in it and in public policy um, and public administration. So when they actually decided to hire somebody, um, I threw my name in the hat didn't think I really had much of a chance, but it was like, Hey, like it'd be nice to have a job that was actually in the field that I studied in. And so just pulled the trigger on that. And they actually liked me. They hired me. Um, but I had no clue what I was supposed to do every day. So I think one of my first phone calls was to, um, Caleb Pollard and in, in Ord and just said like, what do you do every day? Like, like, I don't understand how economic development works. Like what's, what's your everyday look like? And, and looking back at that, like it's, it's a funny question cause I got it a lot and it's, the answer is like, you never have a day that's the same. Um, you might be working on uh, grant writing one day and then you're getting screamed at by a grandma um, that you need to fix potholes and you're like, I mean, that's not really under economic development, but like, we'll talk about it, I guess, and try to get the city council to, to fix some potholes. But the, the primary focus, like if you could distill it down into a couple words was just to grow Neely. The major things that we were focused on um, was we knew that downtown needed to be a priority. Um, so it was a main street that was a half a block off or a block off of a major highway. And so it wasn't getting the foot traffic that it needed. And then you saw some development along the highway corridor that was then pushing 
um, businesses away from the main street. It took three years, but um, we did a lot of strategic planning. Um, so the city had never really done any strategic planning. So we came in, did a strategic plan. Then we did a comprehensive plan, um, which is 18 months of just input from the community on where they want you to grow, um, what they want to see done. So I sat in on a ton of public meetings um, where it, it might have been the same 15 to 20 people at every single meeting. And you're just kind of rehashing the same things. How does Neely fit into this? Um some of the issues that you were alluding to earlier, such as the sort of the exporting of youth, the rural flight, but also I've heard you say before that Neely was a town built on innovation. You know, it's got a vibrant pedigree, but it's also subject to the same forces of rural flight as many of these other smaller towns. So I'm kind of curious how that showed up for you in, in your role. Yeah. Uh, so just background on Neely. Um, a lot of the small towns, um, when you think um, about small rural Nebraska, it's weird to me that like um, Nebraska is a planning and zoning like poster child as a, 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 at least maybe maybe not western Nebraska, but like you you go from about Grand Island east, and we all followed. Um, I think it was Thomas Jefferson that came up with the idea of the platted lands. And so, you know, you fly above it and, and it's quarter mile or, you know, it's a mile sections and we've got beautiful roads that are all gridded out. Um, and, and that really came, you know, when the railroad came, it was a hundred percent planned. It um, was saying, you know, every city um, needs to be seven miles um, at the max away on the railroad because that's how long a train can make it without having to refuel water um, for its steam engine. Um, but Neely's, so a lot of these towns, um, I forget my point, um, but a lot of these towns within would be like seven miles away um, because that's where the railroad needed it. And so, um, you know, you might've had another town pop up and it just kind of died because the railroad wasn't there. But Neely's a unique town in that, um, it was John Neely um, came up from West Point on just a day trip with his buddies up to Yelkhorn and fell in love with the area um, and was like, hey, dude, I'm putting a town here. And so he got a whole bunch of his buddies together and then they built the town, built a mill um, for flour, dammed the river, um, reverted it so it would power the mill. And so a lot of towns, they say, are there because the road was there. And in Neely, it's unique, and it, and it truly shows in how Neely has operated over the years. Um, but Neely is there, or the road is there because Neely is there. Um, so they had to change the railroad. They had to change the highway. Um, they had to plan to try to catch Neely on the, the way that they're going. So, um, you know, Neely's not eight miles or seven miles away from the nearest town. It's actually like four and a half miles and then 11 miles. It's indicative of the spirit of Neely um, in that it's, it's the town's just not going to give up. Um, it's an infinitely more tenacious community than uh, most places. And, and so that uh, it led to some struggles um, when I was in economic development. Um, we had several fights that uh, um, 
I don't think would have been as big in a lot of other communities because of just the spirit of Neely um, as, as a tenacious community that uh, was there before the road was. It sounds like you had some success with Grow Neely, right? But I'm wondering if you might speak a little more broadly to some of those forces about economic development and, um, you know, rural towns. When economic development started in the, uh, I think it started in the late 70s um, as an actual profession, they were called smokestack chasers. And so that meant that um, if they were to be able to land that one big company that was going to provide a hundred jobs, um, you know, those hundred jobs would trickle down into the community and you would see like the entire community raised up and grown. But in rural economic development, how are you supposed to find that the smokestack job? And then it's infinitely more scary too, that you have to manage that relationship so much more that, if that hundred jobs leaves, you've just lost the breadwinner for a tenth of your community. Um, and that's, that's terrifying. And so we knew, yes, it'd be awesome if we could land one of those hundred jobs, like hundred person jobs. So that was on our radar, but it wasn't the primary focus of, of economic development in Neely when we were there. Um, so the primary focus was how do we grow our own hundred person job? how do we create a business that, you know, might start with five employees, might start with one employee, might start with a sole prop. And then that's going to grow um, to a 50 to a hundred person um, job. Or, you know, how do we grow 25 new businesses that might employ two people? Um, and now you've got uh, a 50, you know, 50 new employees in your community. Um, so that was really the focus of how do we grow our own? How do we give them the resources that they need um, to have the confidence in Neely to be able to jump out and start that venture? And we were having trouble trying to find um, a lot of these businesses, a lot of these um, people. And so uh, really started working with consultants, um, like business development consultants and we would sit down and write a business plan with a business. Um, we would sit there and, and look at all the funding options that they would have um, because, you know, a, a normal business loan would be 80% bank, 20% business owner. And so that 20% is huge um, to starting business. Um, you know, if you've got a hundred thousand dollar loan, now you got to come up with 20 grand. Um, you know, when, when your median income is like 45,000, I think was the family median income from Neely. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how you come up with that. And so we were looking at, um, helping to develop all of these business programs to help. Um, so we had some small, we re diverted some of, uh, um, 
our sales tax in Neely to help with business development loans. Um, so it was low interest, like half of prime loans to help um, meet some of those. And then, um, you know, you'd only have to come up with five or 10% down. Um, and then we would help gap some of the, um, some of the liability for local banks. Um, and then working with like some state programs um, to come up with some funding options. Um, and so just trying to bring in multiple funding options um, for businesses in the four years that were there, that I was there. Um, I think we had 26, if I remember new businesses start. And then the big thing was, you know, we've got a lot of businesses in town. How do we transition those to new owners? And so I think we, um, we saved 13 businesses um, in that time. And, and some of those 25 and 13 have gone to bunk because that's just the nature of the beast with businesses. Um, you know, when you're, uh, I think the SBA says 50% failure rate, which uh, I, I hate that statistic because there's lots of things that go into failure. And um, failure means that you didn't meet your business goals or you didn't meet your goals. Um, and a lot of those businesses might have met their goals. They might have been, um, you know, just a small micro enterprise, uh, that was like, oh, I'm going to sell yarn in this shop. Um, but how long are you going to sell yarn? You know, like, am I going to sell yarn for 35 years? Um, but you know, in that five years, it meant that person's personal goal was to sell yarn and make a little bit of side cash and then they were done. Um, so like that was uh, probably the biggest success that we had was helping to drive and grow our own new businesses and helping to, um, increase our employment opportunities by growing our new businesses. And then right before we left, right before I left to start the brewery, um, we had just landed a um, downtown revitalization grant from the state. Um, so it's CDBG money from the feds that's then trickled down to the state. Um, and so they got uh, 350000 to just help revitalize downtown. And they used it mostly on building infrastructure instead of spending all that money to redo the street or sewer system for these buildings, it was actually just a hundred percent into the buildings themselves. And I think there was a 50% match. So, um, you know, the community just had a $700,000 injection into downtown to improve facades, work on, you know, tuck pointing buildings, like all of the, uh, some of the sexy things, but a lot of the like hard work that is going to help that main street and that downtown grow for, the next 50 years. So this is a good point to ask about the brewery. So what was the motivation behind becoming, to going the other side of um, you know, the equation here, to being the business owner? So what motivated the brewery and, and kind of what, what lessons did you take into it? Yes, you know, as you're helping 25 businesses get started, um, 
like you get bit by that bug and you, you totally just want to jump into it wholesale. And, uh, you know, as you're sitting down to like help them write their business plan, looking at the financials of it, you just, it's infectious and you want to do it. And so it was always in the back of my mind, like what business would I want to start? Um, I love cooking. Like it's one of the things that I love to do for my family. I guess my dream job was to bring ethnic foods to small towns. Um, Cause you, you, you got your French fries and your hamburgers and pizza, but like, I want a good gyro. I want like spaghetti every now and then that's like true, like Pomodoro sauce. Um, you know, like I, I, I want a Philly, like a Philly was hard to come by. Um, and so I looked at, you know, could I do a food truck that just specializes in this and it just pops to all these small towns? Um, and it's like, Hey, we're here on Tuesday. Like come grab your Philly and your Euro and, um, and we'll make you, you, you know, you can just have your sort of American ethnic food. But we had already had, uh, we had two kids and then one on the way at the time. And, uh, it was just not going to work because the life of a chef was not the life that I wanted for my family. And so I took that uh, creative side and said, you know, I want to help community with it. I want to be creative and um, I want to develop some sort of cultural center. And so like all of those bullet points came back to do to breweries what you need to do. And so um, it, it sufficed my creative outlet without having to sacrifice family time. Um, so I can be creative during the day and then pay somebody else to share that creativity with other people at night. You mentioned um, wanting to help community. I've been fascinated by um, the work of a couple of correspondents for The Atlantic, Deborah and James Fallows, and they've been reporting on this uh, American Futures project for several years now. As they were looking at communities that thrive and, and those that, that are withering, they found that one of the common features of thriving communities is that they have a brewery. That's always stuck in my mind. And then when I noticed that you'd set up this brewery in Wayne, it, it made me curious about the impact on community. But also you set it up as a benefit corporation. And so that's, that's another aspect, I think, that's important. So maybe you could speak to, we'll take those in turn, but you know, what has been the impact on Wayne and why did you set it up as a benefit corporation? You know, as I struggled to try to like name the brewery on what we ended to name it, and we named it after my grandpa who had a band. I think if I was naming it now though, and, and somebody can feel free to steal this name, if you do like invite me for the first beer um, and I'll be happy. There's a rule that I've heard that, um, people need three things in their life um, or three places. They need um, home, they need work, and they need a third place. And so like the third place is, you know, we don't need to define it, but um, that's really what I wanted from the brewery was that third place. That was more important to us than beer. Um, you know, the beer is, is part of it but developing that place that people can come together, they can find common interests, they can have um, super deep discussions, or they can talk about the dumbest things that they want. Um, that's, that's really what we wanted to provide. And so I think the impact that we've had on the community is providing that space. And in, in Wayne, I didn't realize the niche that we would have and that, that was not being met. And I think, think that's why you might see breweries thriving in small towns 
So in Wayne, you have a bar that focuses on the locals. Um, and so that's um, just the straight watering hole where, um, you know, you get off work and you show up there, you have your like six Bud Lights, actually probably not even Bud Lights, this is probably Bush Lights. And uh, you, you drink those, you know that it's going to be the same like seven people every day at four o'clock. Um, and then you have one that suffices some of the local people that um, uh, maybe a little bit higher end. So, you, you know, you might have some of your teachers there or whatnot. Um, and then in Wayne, you have like the college bar. And so after nine o'clock in Wayne, people would not go to the bars. And they knew that it was just going to be taken over by the college students. And so they would never show up. And so the niche that we fill in Wayne is I don't belong to any three of those categories. Um, so I'm not a local, like I, I, I haven't been here my entire life um, and I'm not a college student. So where do I go? And so like the entire professor group of Wayne State College, which I mean, I, I don't know how many faculty they have, but I would guess it's somewhere up in the range of 250 faculty, which mostly live in Wayne, did not have a place to go have a beer. Um, and so we provided that option. Um, we provided that place where they can actually come in, um, know that they're not going to see all of their students, um, know that they're not going to see locals um, that they might not get along with or that like they might not feel welcome at because they haven't been there their entire life. Um, and so filling that niche um, provides a place where like those people might not have felt welcome in this community anymore. They might not have had a place to go. Um, they might not have, uh, I mean, aside from friends groups, um, not had engagement with the community really. And so we provide that space. Um, and, and, and you can look at that in a lot of small towns. Um, you know, you might have, if, if you're not a local, when you walk into that bar, it can be daunting because everybody's going to turn their head. They're going to stare at you and they're going to say like, who the heck are you? Why are you in my community? Um, I haven't known you since kindergarten. Um, why are you coming to have a beer? And unless you're a super outgoing person that loves that interaction, like it's scary. It's daunting. Breweries provide that safe space where you know, you're not going to have the same five people every day. Um, uh, I think that comes around the culture of craft beer that, um, you know, we know we're going to get a lot of people from Lincoln and Omaha and Sioux city and Sioux falls. And, um, I mean, you draw a, a two hour line around Wayne and we're going to draw people to the brewery just because they want to try our craft beer. It's nice to have that injection of cash from around the area, but it's also very welcoming to a new person in town that, they're going to find their third place pretty quickly. Um, and, and I think that's true of all breweries in small towns um, and just all breweries in general, like we're used to seeing different faces. What was it that drove the benefit corporation side of the structure? One thing that I don't think a lot of people understand about rural businesses is that you are a steward of the community there would not be a baseball team. There would not be a football team. There would not be um, an FBLA. Um, there, the, those small things, even the Chamber of Commerce would not exist without the support of the business community. And so it is one of those things that I, I don't think we give rural businesses enough credit 
on what they've done for the community and the stewardship they've taken. Um, there's a big term now called social entrepreneurship. And so that means that like you care about the community. And, and as I was in economic development and started to like learn this term social entrepreneurship, I was like, why is this a thing? Like it, it's defining what, like it's trying to define air pretty much. Um, you know, like this is what rural businesses do every day. And, and it, it boggled my mind that people hadn't thought like this, that like a lot of the big companies in, in, in bigger towns just did not have that stewardship component. Like they were like, Hey, we're going to take our profits and, and, and we're going to invest it into our company and we're going to invest it into, or we're just going to take it and, and, and live a happy life. And they weren't investing it back into the community. And, and I, I look at small businesses that know that our community would not be the same without our support. And so Instead of trying to regulate that or trying to create public policies that would would make those businesses think more stewardship oriented um, or or even giving some incentives for stewardship, I knew that I wanted to set up my business um, that no matter what happened to us, stewardship of the community and benefiting the community as a whole was going to be part of our business. Um, and that's really what a benefit corporation does. Um, uh, in Nebraska terms it pretty loosely that, um, it's just a company that's going to benefit. Um, it's going to benefit others in the community. And uh, so our three main tenants um, are paying our employees a fair and honest wage. Um, so in Nebraska, as a tipped employee, you could get two twenty-five an hour is the minimum wage. And so we pay our employees at least five times that, uh, or four times, excuse me. Um, and then um, we wanted to um, have an environmental impact on our community. And so um, we... Uh, I think there's some other breweries that are in Nebraska, but we, we, our electric brew system um, is electric. So um, we buy all of our, um, all of our beers are backed by renewable energy credits. Um, so we go out there on the open market and we buy um, uh, renewable energy credits specifically from wind. Um, and so um, our beers, hundred percent renewable energy. And then um uh, you know, we have hand towels in the bathroom that are multiple use. Um, so we take them home and wash them and then put them back out there. So we've saved, I think in the three years that we've been open over, like imagine a minivan, um, worth of, uh, refuse from, uh, the landfills in just paper towels, um, which is staggering that, um, I mean, you know, you're drinking in a bar, you're going to go pee more often. Um, and so just keeping some of those, uh, uh, paper towels out of the land use was important to us. And then our third is, um, giving back to the community. Um, so we give back 10% of our profits to the community, um, just on projects. And at least half of that 10% is, um, the decision is driven by our, um, by our employees. Talking all night, out here sipping my ties on the coast. Good life, we're living a good life. Out here in the sunlight, get the gold. Yeah, I used to care about all.
Are you the brewer? Tell us a little bit about the craft beers that you're brewing and their names. Our business model is we wanted to be a neighborhood tap room. So we know we're not going to be um, the next zip line or the next Sierra Nevada. Like, uh, like we know we're not going to be big. And, and uh, so we really wanted to just focus, like hyper-localize is what we really wanted to focus on. And so we are super unique in that like we don't have six beers um, that are on tap at all times. And then we rotate in some seasonal beers. Um, our tap is ever changing. We do 93 gallon batches. Um, we're one of the smaller breweries in Nebraska. When we first opened, we had six taps that were just ever changing. Um, we've increased it to 10 and we have um, four of our flagship beers that are on tap at all times, but the other six beers we say we change them weekly, which means that like if you come in, you know, in six weeks, you should have a brand new slate of beers that are up there that you've never tried. So I am the brewer. I have an assistant brewer that helps out every now and then who's also um, pretty much my head bartender. We change our beers all the time. I think in the almost three years we've done, I think batch, I think I just did batch 285 the other day. And we've only repeated 40 of those batches. So we've done, you know, 240 different batches of beer. Um, and those are super unique beers that, um, you know, it's not like we're just changing one tiny ingredient in them. Um, we're trying different styles. We're just throwing everything at the wall. Our mainstay beers would be, um, we have really hard water in Wayne, like the hardest water I've ever seen, which is a brewing lesson. Um, the reason that you would see different styles of beer in different regions of the world. So like in Pilsner, um, Czechoslovakia, uh, they had insanely soft water, like softest water that like after you took a bath, you would have to take a shower to wash the water off you um, or wash the soap suds off you. And then conversely, like in Ireland, um, they have really hard water. And so Pilsner, the, the region soft water, um, makes a really nice light crisp Pilsner beer. And then hard water makes a really nice stout porter um, that has just like dark complex notes to it. And so with our hard water, we play tend to play a little bit more towards uh, the darker beers. And so we have a honey porter, which we call a table porter. So it goes with anything. Um, it's uh, Abe's honey porter is what we call it. Any time of the year, it's super crisp. Got a lot of honey, like local honey in it. And then we've got, um, like, I know some of your viewers are going to balk at the name, but um, I'll get into the story. We have the vanilla white girl milk stout. And so um, it was uh, modeled off of uh, a coffee that one of our local coffee shops in Wayne had that was called the white girl and so we added vanilla to it, um, modeled a beer that would uh, hit the same flavor notes as this super popular coffee. Um, and that's kind of our transition beer from a lot of people that are like, I don't, I don't like dark beer. And then you're like, but wait, have you tried this coffee beer? And, uh, and they love it. And then we've got um, a grapefruit triple IPA. Um, it's Marjorie grapefruit triple IPA. And uh, that's a 10% alcohol beer that's got twice the hops that you can actually taste. Um, so it's a super bitter beer that uh, is beautiful. 
we've won a national award with that, the Marjorie Grapefruit Triple. And then with the Apes Honey Porter, we've actually won some awards and have medals hanging up in our tap room. How did you go about becoming a brewer? A lot of it was just teaching myself how to do it on the internet. Um, bought the Bible of home brewing. Um, uh, like it's actually just a book called How to Brew. And it just teaches you everything that you need to know. And then having that resource of my buddy who's been brewing since he was 18. This is a big leap. This is a big business leap to take uh, by being a self-taught brewer from the internet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it is daunting. So when we started, we had a lot of people that would be like, so did you go over to Germany? Were you taught by the Germans? Like, are you an actual beer master and, and, and brew master? And you're like, like, no, that's not actually a thing anymore. Um, and, uh, and the cool thing about craft beer is that um, I have a buddy that like my best friend lives over in Germany. And uh, he says that a lot of the craft beer over there, or just even beer in general, I guess, um, that they're looking to America for inspiration and trying to come up with like, Hey, how are the Americans doing this? And so to be on the cutting edge of beer again, um, is super cool that like even the Germans are trying to catch up with us. So we're recording this at a time during a pandemic that is not going away anytime soon. And you're running a a business that relies upon people getting together. You've defined it, described it. Uh, Part of the motivation is it's a third place. And now we're saying to people, you're only allowed one place and you've got to stay there. Um, (laughs) And it's not the brewery. How are you personally as a family and how are you as a business and how are you as a community coping with the pandemic right now? Um, as a family, you know, I got four kids and a wife who teaches. So um, it's stressful um, just trying to teach our kids like, hey, this is why you can't go play in the park. Um, this is why you can't go play with your friends. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't think that... I would be reminded by a six-year-old that like, Hey, we got to grab our mask dad. Cause we're going to the store. Um, just seeing some of the fear from a, a child is, uh, you know, I just, I wonder about our society and how much anxiety is going to come out of this. I mean, I know there's already some, but like we're instilling it in a six-year-old. Um, that's scary. Um, but as a business, uh, yeah, we had eight weeks where we were to go only. We had one case in Wayne County during that time. Um, uh, I think there was a lot of lessons learned on how to handle a pandemic in rural Nebraska. We shut down when we shouldn't have, and now we're opening back up um, when we probably should be shutting down. Uh, so it's it's an interesting time to try to navigate that. Um, and we really, during that eight weeks, we really missed, um, I would probably say anywhere from 30 to 40% of our business comes from just the surrounding area and, and, and brewery tourism. 
And uh, so, I mean, we took a giant hit just financially from that. But uh, I think the biggest thing that sucked was we were selling to-go beers and just having, you know, that minute conversation and interaction with somebody. And we're used to somebody sitting there for an hour and a half um, and having those super in-depth conversations about anything um, and then worrying about them, worrying about how their uh, mental health is doing, you know, missing them and wanting to check in with them. Um, like that was probably the hardest thing about the pandemic. Um, and then coming out of the pandemic, you know, we've, we've seen an uptick, um, but it's still like, okay, we need to be as responsible as we can because, you know, we don't want to be that place that then got 56 people, you know, that were in our back room the other day. Um, you know, all of them, like half of them testing positive coronavirus and then getting somebody else sick. So it's tough trying to navigate that responsibility line. And probably the scariest thing for us as a business has been, I don't know. I mean, like if I'm being honest, I, I, I feel like the coronavirus is modern day leprosy. And in a small town, you know, um, if you were to get it, then, you know, how is your business going to rebound from that? Like, are people going to trust you? Are they going to come in? Are they going to um, think negatively about you for the next couple months um, and, and harbor those, you know, Hey, they didn't, they didn't protect me good enough. Um, it's scary. You have some outdoor space as well as the indoor spaces, a lot of glass, a lot of doors and windows. Um, so we, we really encourage a lot of like outside seating just because it's been proved that um, that circulation of air makes it quite a bit safer. So we have a beautiful outdoor um, beer garden that we've had a lot of use for, uh, but we don't have as much like people uh, using the tap room as much, um, even though we've got social distancing in there. It's weird navigating the entire mask thing too um, because, uh, you know, we're smack dab in the middle of, of rural Nebraska. Um, and, and even though we might be a progressive bastion, um, y- you know, the, still 50% of our populations, um, probably Donald Trump supporters and a lot of our clientele that uh, like deep, meaningful relationships with like, you know, uh, support him and don't support masks and, so it, it's, that's a tough thing to try to, to navigate like that, you know, trying to protect yourself and protect others is now a political statement. Um, and it's crazy. What is your hope for the future after this? Um, do you have like an aspiration? So we, in the future, um, we're going to be launching um, Spirits. So uh, we're just really excited about like, uh, all the cool things that we can do with making, um, you know, Nebraska single malt whiskey, um, you know, making vodka, gin. We've got some pretty cool stuff um, in the future uh, that we're we're planning on. And then um, a beautiful building next door to us is up for sale. So we're trying to come up with a business plan where we can do something cool with that, um, something a little bit more community oriented. We're just looking at like the cool ways that we can impact our community, um, change perception, uh, and uh, just yeah, just grow Johnny Bird as a whole, and then um, and growing Wayne and providing different options to people. Um, we're just excited about that.
My guest today has been Greg Tarchek, the founder of Johnny Bird Brewing Company in Wayne, Nebraska. Greg, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Who doesn't wish they could be a wizard? I wish it all the time. I know, yeah. Like, I want to do magic. It's not that big of a wish. <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> with a with a moustache like that, you'd be in Slytherin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just twirling it constantly. <laughs> yeah, like the evil villain kind of thing. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.